Let's start today with a little quiz. Have you ever been accused of having a screw loose? Yes, okay, all right. So far you are passing this quiz. Very good, good job. Um, has everyone, anyone ever questioned your sanity? Has anyone ever said to you, well, bless your heart? Oh, no. Uh, if so, if so, then you might have something in common with Jesus. Huh. I thought about that. Well, that's what that's kind of what's happening in this passage today that we're going to look at. In Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20, we're going to look at a passage in which Jesus is fielding several accusations against him. One of which is has he lost his mind? Is is he is he right in the head? Does he know what's going on? So let's look at this passage together. Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Mark. Mark, yes. Did I say Matthew? Mark. We're in Mark. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Would you stand with me once again before before we settle in for the message and um, as we read God's Word together. I'll read it aloud and you follow along with me. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul and By the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in the next uh, few minutes that we have together today, as we uh, look at this passage more closely, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts, reveal to us what you would have us to, to know and to understand. And Lord, I pray that you will change us. Lord, there's nothing that I can say or do to affect any change in our, in our lives, to do any good in us today, but you can. So by your Spirit, do that work 
through the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, the theme that I'd like us to, to, to notice in this passage today is just, is, it's the title of the message. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is stronger. The, look, look at how this, this story unfolds today. I, I, I don't try to get too you know, deep in the weeds in terms of, of, of analysis of the passage, but we have talked a little bit recently about, um, as we've worked through the Gospel of Mark, we've talked about how the stories are written, that they usually begin with a setting, um, they usually begin or they continue on with some kind of a conflict in the story and, and a climactic moment in the story and where things get resolved and, and turn around and, and, and people are changed or the, the scene switches and then a new setting. We, we've talked a little bit about that. Um, something like that is going on in this passage today. It begins with a couple of verses, verses 20 and 21, where Jesus is at home with his disciples and the crowds are gathering and, and it's crazy time. It kind of reminds me of this weekend. Um, it was crazy time in that Johnson household. We had a graduation ceremony, an open house to do, and on top of that was a, um, a dozen other things that just kind of piled on us. And so there were times when we were like, um, don't forget to eat. Um, and we managed to get through. Well, we're, we're getting there. And uh, still not quite through the woods yet, but we'll get through today and see how it goes. But that's the situation that was going on there. But then look at verse 21. In our, Eng in our English Bibles uh, today, it says, And when his family heard it, heard it. And that term for family is, is the ones who are close to him. And the, probably, and I'll say this, that probably that was his mother and his brothers that are mentioned later on in the story. But they, they heard what was going on and they're like, what's going on with him? So they come to seize him. They're saying he's out of his mind. Well, then, then the, the scene kind of shifts a little bit, right? So it's not the family questioning him, but now it's the scribes, these, these experts in the, in the Jewish law, experts in the Old Testament scriptures who are coming from Jerusalem to, to kind of do a little inspection. They're kind of like the UN inspectors um, looking for weapons of mass destruction or something like that. They're, they're, out to, they're, they're inspecting Jesus and his ministry and his works and they have, his ac have, they have accusations against Jesus. They're saying... We know why he's doing all of these things. We know why he's able to cast out demons. We know where this power comes from. It comes from Satan himself. Of course, Jesus has a response to that, as, we, as you saw, as we heard in the reading. Um, in fact, Jesus has some pretty strong things to say. He says, truly, I say to you, this is a true statement about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Well, that happens, and then the scene shifts back to family. Suddenly, we see his mothers and brothers again, and they're calling out to them. They're looking for him. They're, they're, they're actually trying to maybe stage an intervention, and they're ha having a hard time getting to Jesus because of the crowds. The crowds are on the inside. They're sitting around Jesus and listening to him, ironically, in the house, where his family is on the outside calling to him. Basically saying, hey, Jesus, come 
with us. There's, come home. We, we've got a nice place for you. Come back to the country and, uh, and rest a while because um, yeah, yeah, I think you need some help, buddy. This is uh, this, this scenario or this story structure where you've got two related scenes and then in the middle is a seemingly unrelated scene Beelzebul, demons, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, kind of sandwiched between these other two, is a technique that Mark uses in his gospel. In fact, this is kind of one of the, one of the early instances of an, uh, this obvious technique. And the reason why I, I point it out to you is because it helps us understand why these, these passages or these, these individual scenes seem to be they seem to be different, but actually they comment on each other. And they point to the center story. They point to the story in the middle about um, Jesus teaching about binding a strong man, about the teaching about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, his contradicting the accusations against him. He, in fact, is pointing us, pointing out to us that he is stronger, that Jesus himself is the one who enters the blind man's house and plunders his goods. In fact, we can start with, with um, the first point, that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus is stronger than Satan. He, yeah, there you go. Jesus is stronger than Satan. That's, that's the whole point of that middle story. That here is Jesus saying, look, Satan is strong, yes, but I'm not here with the power of Satan. I'm here with a power that is greater than. I have authority over Satan. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over uh, to, the authority to forgive. He's got authority over the Sabbath day. He's shown he has, has authority over all of these things. And all throughout the story, Mark has been showing us that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Now it comes to kind of a, a head where Jesus is making it explicitly clear in this passage. He began his ministry back in chapter 1, going into the synagogue, or on a Sabbath day, that is, and casting out an unclean spirit from a man. Back in uh, chapter 1, verses 23 to 26. And then in verses 32 to 34, the, the ministry of Jesus was to heal all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And he healed many, and he cast out many demons, and he didn't let the demons speak because they knew him. And then in verse 39, again, he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And then in this last, pa uh, last chapter, there he is again in chapter 3, Verses 11 and 12, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And then what did he do last week? We looked at, we looked at his call to the disciples last week. He gathered those to him that he had chosen. And he, he appointed them apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to do what? To preach and to what? have authority over demons. Authority to cast out demons, verse 
15 says. That's what Jesus has been doing this whole time. In fact, he is just continuing the, continuing the fight against the enemy that began in the wilderness. Remember all the way back there at the beginning of Mark? Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. And what is he doing in the wilderness? He's being tempted by Satan. And he is defeating him with the power of the word, resisting that temptation. This entire time, Mark has, trying to, has been trying to show us that Jesus is stronger than Satan. He's stronger than Satan. He's stronger than Satan's kingdom. He's stronger than anything that Satan can throw at him. But the scribes come looking. <laughs> They're looking for a reason. Remember back in the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 3, verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether He would heal Him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Him. Well, they're looking at Jesus. They're looking for reasons to accuse Him. They, they can't take it. They can't understand Him. They refuse to believe in Him. They refuse to believe that He is who He says He is, that He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God, that He is the Christ. He is demonstrating by His actions and by the message of the Gospel that He is that. And they're looking for a reason to accuse Him. And so their latest accusation is, well, then He must be of Satan if he has this power. That's how he's doing all of these amazing and miraculous things. But Jesus says, can Satan cast out Satan? Let's think through this logically. Does this make sense? A kingdom divided against itself can't stand, right? A house or a household divided against itself, a family divided against itself cannot stand. It's eventually going to fall apart, crumble. If Satan himself has risen up and he's divided against himself, he can't stand, but it's a sign that he's come to an end. Jesus makes these points through these, these uh, three different uh, parabolic statements. But, but, if somebody stronger than Satan has arrived on the scene, if somebody who's able to exercise power and authority over Satan and do the things that Jesus does, then maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's a time to take note. Maybe that's a time to, to pay attention to this. If he is stronger, then he can do it. How many of you remember the story? Some of your, uh, our young ones might remember the story of David and Goliath? 1 Samuel 17. The, the, the story is told in 1 Samuel 17 of a, of a young man named David. And he is a shepherd boy, the youngest of a family of, or let's see, how, how many brothers does he have? Seven brothers? I think he's the, the eighth, is that right? He's, he's, the, he's a little boy, he's a little runt of the family, but... He's, he's a handsome little guy. He's, he's ruddy, he's strong, he's wiry. He's, he's, he's got skills to pay the bills, at least as a shepherd boy. But he's never fought in battle. In fact, he's, he's not quite grown into his stature yet. 
He, he can't fit into the armor of somebody like a great king like Saul, who was head and shoulders above the rest of men. He's not like that. He's not, he's not a great man. But in a time of great need for his people, when the giant Goliath, who probably stood eight to nine feet tall, comes out to challenge God's people, David says, I'll go fight him. And he does, with a sling and a stone, and defeats the giant on the field of battle, takes his sword and cuts off his head, and the enemy is routed. Right? That's how the story goes. Well, what's the point of that story? The point of it is beyond that story. The point of it is not how, um, if we are wiry enough, if we're if we're clever enough, if we're sneaky enough, we can use our weaknesses as an advantage over other people and defeat them or the giants in our life or whatever. That story actually points us to somebody greater. Jesus himself is the greater warrior. Part of the key of understanding David's story in the Old Testament is to look at at First Samuel verse or chapter sixteen verse thirteen, a little story that comes before David and Goliath. In First Samuel sixteen thirteen, it says that from that day on, David was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. If he's pointing to Jesus, if that story really is supposed to point us to Jesus, and here we have Jesus teaching that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. This word strong man is, could be translated as an adjective. It's a mighty one. A giant. <laughs> Maybe. Jesus is stronger than Satan. And the proof of his being stronger is that he has the Spirit of the Lord on him. In Mark chapter 1, go all the way back to the beginning. Remember remember what John the Baptist said? He said, After me comes one who is mightier. And he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Because He has the Holy Spirit to give. And when Jesus was baptized, the, the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on Him like a dove. And the Spirit drove Him out into the wilderness to be tempted. The, the Spirit was guiding Him and empowering Him the whole way. And now Mark doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on the work of the Spirit in this Gospel, but from the very beginning, Mark is giving us a clue that everything that Jesus did was empowered by the Spirit. So when you're reading along and Jesus is doing this and that, and you're like, well, where's the Spirit? The Spirit is there. In, it, in our lives as well. You know, even, even unmentioned, even forgotten, the Spirit is at work in our lives, just like He was in Jesus. But that's, that is where Jesus' strength came from. That is where His power came from. That is where His ability to plunder the strong man came from. We heard from Isaiah um, 49, verses 24. Uh, well, we heard 
more than just verses 24 to 26. But in that particular passage, we read there that he says, uh, he says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Using those words in the Old Testament. Well, can they? Can they be rescued? Can the, the tyrants and the mighty be plundered? Only if there's one stronger. And that is what Jesus is showing himself to be right here in this passage. He is the mighty one. He is the one mightier. And so, he challenges those who would say, no, you're getting this power somewhere else. So, he, so that's, where, that's where he says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So what was he talking about there? Don't take, don't take that passage and try to figure out what blaspheming of the Holy Spirit means out of context. Because Mark is showing us exactly what it means. It means that we're giving credit to the devil what, does, what should, be give, uh, should be credited to the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're flipping the, the, the story around. One commentator says, this is the sin of the willfully blind. That's the scribes. We don't want to believe. We don't want to have anything to do with this man. The willfully blind who persistently refuse the illumination of the Spirit, who oppose the Spirit's work and justify themselves in doing so by deliberately misrepresenting Him, Jesus. Another way of, of thinking about blasphemy, the, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is calling good evil and calling evil good. And when Jesus is doing a work, we say, oh, that must be because of this or that. I, th I, I think one of the first things that challenged me as I was reading this passage is how many times we look at another person's life and we go, oh, that's because they're selfish or that's because they're prideful or that's because um, they've, they're doing this or that wrong. That's why... This is happening in them. That's pretty general terms. But how about this when the church down the street is leading people to Jesus, is seeing people baptized? What's the first thing we do? Their, their, their worship gatherings are full, and we think, why are people flocking there? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that there's not a time and place to, to have a critical mind and, and, and think through wisely what's going on in other places. But if our first impulse is to go, oh, they must be doing something wrong, something against God if they're so successful, because real, real churches are, are poor and small and struggling, because that's the way of Jesus. Maybe that hits close to home, maybe it doesn't. It does to me, especially as somebody who has, uh, over the last few years, 
um, been asked to show results. What's going on in the River Church? How many people are, are showing up to worship? How many people are in attendance there? How, many, how much is the offerings every week? How many people have you baptized? How many leaders are you developing? Or whatever the question is. And it's really, really easy to look at somebody else in another place or down the street or in another part of the state or country or whatever and start judging them and claiming that they're, they must be doing something wrong or something nefarious and that's why they are the way they are. We uh, ought to be very careful about, about judging the work of Jesus. The work that he's doing in another person's heart and the work that he's doing in another church. Jesus is stronger. That is, that is clear. And of course that has implications for us and for what we do and how we treat one another and how we follow and worship this God. But if that's the, if, if that's the main point of the passage, that is the, that is the thing that is sandwiched between these other two, two scenes, well, what are those other two scenes all about? Why are they there? What, what, how do they shed light on this passage? Why is it like that? Well, Jesus is stronger than Satan, yes. But something more, something closer to heart for all of us is that Jesus is stronger than our attempts to control him. Jesus is stronger than our attempts to control him. In verse 21, they were saying, the family heard it, they went out to seize him. What does that mean? They wanted to get control of him. That's what it meant to seize somebody. And in fact, the word's used all over in the New Testament, and most of the time, it's used in relation to arresting somebody. That's, that's how the word is used. They're going to go seize him. In, in, in Mark chapter 14, the soldiers who came from the chief priests went to seize Jesus. They arrested him to throw him in jail, to, to bring him before the council, to beat him, and to crucify him. And his family is there. We got to get a hold of this guy. We got to talk some sense into him. We need to get him into a treatment program or something. We got to seize this guy. And then in verse 31, that's what they're doing again. They're standing outside, outside, saying, Go send a messenger in there. Tell Jesus he needs to come out to us. They're calling. They're sending to him. They're calling to him. They're doing the same thing. They want to get control of this guy who's out of control. He doesn't even have time to eat. Something must be wrong. The implication of all of that is that they knew better than Jesus what he ought to be about, what his mission ought to be, and what he should be doing. If he would only do what they wanted, things would be right. Things would be better. Things would be good. 
But the problem is, is that they are the ones who are actually on the outside looking in. Jesus this whole time is trying to bring people onto the inside. He cares about the inside, but he wants people to be on his team. He's calling people to follow him. He's calling people to be his disciples, to be his apostles. And so look what he says. Jesus points out to them, no, those aren't my mother and my brother and my sister. My family, the ones who are on the inside, are the ones who do what God wants. Look at verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's those who do God's will. Now that's a big phrase. So what does that mean? Well, read all 66 books of the Bible and figure out what God wants. And okay, that's part of it. Indeed, that's part of it. But closely connected to this, look with me at verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him. Who are those sitting around him? Mark doesn't define them specifically. But let's, let's think a bit. Who, who has he called to himself recently? Who has he named? He's named names. In fact, he's given names out. He's called people to do what? To be with him and so that he could send them out. He did that back in verses 14 and 15. His disciples, who he called apostles. Disciples are learners and apostles are sent ones. Learning at his feet and being sent out by him to do his will and to fulfill his mission on earth. So what is God's will? What is Jesus talking about here? Whoever does the will of God? Don't take that verse out of context. Look right here at the context. What is God's will for, for not just for these people but for all people? That they be with him and they be sent out by him. That they spend time with Jesus. That's what it means to be with Him. To be with Jesus is to spend time with Him. To spend time at His feet. There they are. They're, they're all sitting around Jesus. They're learning from Him. They're learning everything they can. Not just information, but they're learning how He loved. They're learning how He lived. They're learning what it is that we ought to spend our time doing. If we stay outside... In the world, in the darkness, we will only learn what the world wants us to learn. We will only learn how the world does things, how the world responds to adversity, how the world orders their lives. That's not where Jesus wants us to be. To do the will of God means to sit at Jesus' feet and to learn from Him. And then it means to go wherever He tells you to go. He said... What is it? That he might send them out. And what does he send them out to do? To proclaim the good news wherever they go, wherever they are sent, and to have authority over the evil spirits. To go with the same authority that Jesus had. Jesus is stronger. That means that those who are on the inside with him are also stronger. Because we have that same power, that whole same spirit. 
that he baptizes his believers with. But let's draw the connection. This is not two different messages. This is not a message about Jesus being stronger than Satan and another one about Jesus being stronger than us who control him. Because the point that Mark is making here is a difficult one. And so you're, I'm, I'm okay if you are offended by it. Because I am a bit offended myself. If you refuse to spend time with Jesus, if you refuse to be sent out by Him, to go and do the mission that He's called us to, you are essentially doing what the scribes did. You're accusing Jesus of being on Satan's side. You're calling good evil, and you're calling evil good. That's the point that he's trying to make here. That's the tie-in. That's the connection between these two scenes of family opposing him and resisting Jesus and saying, Jesus, you need to get on our business. You need to get on our side. You, you need to do what we ask you to do. Attempts to control him. And the, the connection between Jesus' authority and power and strength over the enemy of souls. What would that look like? What would it look like for you to spend time with Jesus? I, I have been challenged by this recently and my failure to, to shut out the noise of everyday life and just be in the presence of Jesus and in His Word. It's not a new concept. <laughs> it's not something new. It's not like I need to get... Imagine... Imagine you're trying to get healthy. Man, I'm out of shape. I've not been eating right. It's basic. Eat good food, get a little exercise every day, and be a healthier person. There are no magic bullets or pills to take. It's not something new. It's not some new program. And it's pretty basic stuff. And it can be nuanced differently in different places. And for you and for me, it's, it might be different. It's real basic stuff. We spend time with Jesus. And, and for me personally, um, I fail every day to be with Jesus as I should and to be sent out as I should. I'm just so consumed by my own interests. And I think, Jesus, if you would only get on my agenda, if you would only get on my plans for me and for my life, everything would be a lot better. And I'm blaspheming. Am I blaspheming the Holy Spirit in doing that? Am I calling good evil and evil good? We will fail. We will fail in our attempts at this. Even as we're hearing that call, But the good news is that Jesus is stronger than our failures. He's stronger than Satan. He's stronger than our attempts to control him. But he's also stronger than our failures. Well, look at, look at that again. Look, look back at verse 27 again. What does he do? He says, but if one can enter a strong man's house 
and plunder his goods. Or no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his goods. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He is stronger than Satan and stronger than his kingdom. He will not be bound. He will not be controlled by us or by anyone. He is the one who does the binding. And guess what he does when he does that? He's the one who puts us on the inside. We are all in one of these categories. We're either making direct accusations at Jesus and thumbing our nose at Him and, and giving Him some inappropriate gestures or we're like the mother and the brothers who are like, Jesus, you're cray-cray. This is not going to work for me in my life. Get on my agenda. We're one of those two. None of us can be on the inside except by His grace. He's stronger than our failures. That means our sins. And here's how He did it. You think Jesus understood the will of God? Maybe you could write down these verses. John 4, verse 34 Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. He says later on that His will, God's will, is that none of those who God gave to Him might be lost. And He saves to the uttermost. So that the writer of Hebrews, in chapter 5, verse 8, says, although He was a son, what that means, perfection in heaven for eternity, he was a son. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What is that eternal salvation? Well, in, in terms of this story in Mark, it's his family. He has allowed us to be his family. And to all who did believe in him, who received him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to be children of God. John 1, verse 12. He perf perfectly obeyed. He did the will of God. He knows what it's like to be a son. He knows what it's like to be a perfect family member. And he learned obedience by suffering unto death on the cross. And he did, so he, he himself did what we could not do. Lived that perfect life. And then defeated sin and Satan. Why? It's right there. He is the strong man or the mighty one that Isaiah spoke of. He is the one who is mightier that John the Baptist foretold. He is the one who destroys the work of Satan, sin and death and plunders his house. He sets the captives free. All of us who are under, under Satan's rule. 
He sets free and releases. We don't become His by getting it all right is the point. We go to Jesus and say, Jesus, help me do the will of God. Help me obey you. Help me respond to you in faith. Help me be submissive to you when you're calling me. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. If, we, if, we're, if we're thinking that if we just got to try harder at this, we'll, we'll get this, we'll nail this, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. What is our only hope in life and in death? It is Jesus. It is Jesus who is stronger. He is stronger over the work of Satan. He is stronger over our attempts to try to get him to do what we want him to do. He is stronger over even our failures because he did what only he could do. Defeated the work of Satan. Amen?